Um, well, it's not really been all that long since the last time we had to do this, but very sadly we're doing it again. Um, I logged on to Facebook and at the top of the page were a couple of status updates from people. One saying, oh no, not another one. And one saying, another piece of my childhood is gone. And my first thought was, oh no, somebody else from the world of Doctor Who has died. But neither of those status updates said who it was. And the news hadn't come up on Yahoo or anywhere. I think it was just breaking. I had to scroll down to find out who it was. And I have to say, when I saw it was Mary Tam, I was absolutely shocked. Just, you just couldn't believe it, to be honest. Completely unexpected. I don't think anybody really knew that she'd been ill. And she just seemed so young and so vital. And another thing as well is, I think all four of us actually lived through the key to time on broadcast, right? Yeah, we did. And... As sad as it is when somebody who dies from episodes that were before you were watching Doctor Who and that you've watched only on VHS or DVD, that's still a part of the show's history and it's still somebody that you associate with the show. But when somebody dies that you actually watched doing it, you know, when they were doing it, that seems to strike home so much closer. I think because of my age, I hadn't realised there was a previous Romana. I think I was just that little bit younger. Um, and I was given this book by my parents called The Key to Time by Peter Haining. Yeah, yeah. Really nice hardback book. <clears throat> Got some fantastic photos and stuff. I remember seeing this photo of Mary Tam as Romana 1. And I was blown away by the fact there was a Romana 1. And it really struck me. It was just a really beautiful picture. It's from... Uh, the... No, it's the one where they send up uh, Prisoner of Zender. Android Zatara. Uh-huh of her in that sort of purple outfit. And I just remember thinking at the time, I was obviously a very young lad. Wow, a beautiful woman. And she was just really striking, even mm. just from a photo. And it just made me want to go back and, and see those stories. Obviously, for me, it was quite a while before I actually got, got to see them because they wouldn't come out on video or DVD for a while. Mm. Yeah. So this is a very sad occasion. It is. But, you know, as ever, like last time, we're just going to do... A regular blue box podcast we're not going to dwell on all the negatives we're going to just get on with it and talk about the stories that mary town was in I'm JR. I'm Lee. I'm Mark. I'm Simon. And at the top of the show, because we're just going to do a regular Blue Box podcast for 60 seconds, Simon's going to be talking about the Time Warrior on the spot. (laughs) The Time Warrior. Now, first appearance of the Suntarans. Um, First appearance of Sarah Jane. My God. Uh, Yeah, I just... I don't think I watched it on the original broadcast. In fact, I think the first time I'd watched it properly was on after the DVD release. Um, and strangely, usually I wait until they go a bit cheaper on Amazon and what have you. But I actually bought it while it was as soon as it came out. Um, 
really, really great story. Um, the idea of oh, I'm trying to think this this kind of weird juxtaposition the juxtaposition of future and past, um, and almost like a spaceman and King Arthur setup. So you've got uh, we just got this great thing where you think it's just a historical story, then all of a sudden the sci-fi elements come into it. So um, I can't recommend it enough. I think it's a really, really good story. John Pertwee's on good form. Um, Sarah Jane obviously is brilliant, and um, yeah, no, it's a really, really good story. And Sontarans at their best, not what they are now, which is a big joke. Ooh. Sean M. Vale has emailed in. I love the podcast. It's right up there with, well, he says, you don't like names named, but imagine a couple of Canadian ones, ones that's based in a caravan somewhere in the ether and one that inexplicably, inexplicably seems to revolve around a nutter with a blue box in Florida of all places. Although I think that box is painted pink now. Okay. In other words, Sean M. Vale is once again comparing us unfavorably with the Radio Free Sky. <laughs> <laughs> and so on and so forth. As an American, I know, sorry, I came to Who rather late in the 80s and actually rather early, paradoxically. The first story I saw all the way through was The Daleks. Up to that point, my best friend and I, weaned on Star Wars and Star Trek films, had seen bits and pieces on PBS and called the show Doctor Why. <laughs> Excellent. Ouch. <laughs> I'm a bit sh ashamed of that now, Sean M. Vale carries on. But since my first Hartnell, which was Daleks, as he just mentioned, I've been hooked and seen every episode at least twice and even made it through the reconstructions at least once. Okay, I admit that I've not yet seen all of Underworld, although I have made it through the first two episodes. To be honest, just well, don't bother. The Stop there. Episode and a half. Well, the first. I've the been making. I've been making a point of watching all the really bad episodes. Mm. Bad yeah. stories. I, I like to champion the underdog, I've got yeah. to say, but yeah. Underworld, oh. oh yeah. I'll, I'll give it a go. I remember reading the book. I've never watched it. Right. Try reading the book at the same time as watching it. <laughs> More interesting. Watch the first episode, then go to bed, but leave the rest of the DVD playing <laughs> so it thinks it's been watched. Right. Okay. And watch the dog howl through the night. Um, one more email before we get on. Uh, this is, I like this one. This is from Ben Schneider. Um, just listen to your podcast, episode 16, 1970, mm -hmm. um, which is, you know. I really loved the moment where you described the quality of the CSO Silurian dinosaur as being talents of Wang Chiang rat good. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah, so I'm looking forward to your new rule for explaining cheesy special effects to say that it's either flat out crap or that it's merely rat, rat good. good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, lovely, he says. It reminded me of a discussion thread from the old Outpost Gallifrey Forum. We were discussing the best way to introduce a newcomer to classic Doctor Who, and someone suggested that a newbie should simply watch Talons of Wang Chiang to become instantly addicted to the show. Others disagreed, pointing out that a giant sewer rat was so unconvincing that it would put a virgin viewer off the show completely. <laughs> I can't remember who said it, but some brilliant person said that they should tell the new viewer to just ignore the rat and enjoy the show. Oh, brilliant. <clears throat> I was floored, says Ben. I thought that was the single best advice I'd ever heard on how to enjoy all of classic Doctor Who. Three simple words, ignore the rat. <laughs> Can we have permission to put that on T-shirts? That is brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> what, not rat good? Rat good's better. I think, no. <laughs> I, th I think ignore the rat's better. Oh, no, ignore, ignore the, rat. the rat across the front and then across the back. It's rat good. 
<laughs> what, with a picture of Roland Rett on there? I was just thinking that, you yeah. <laughs> Oh, oh no, here comes another, another one. one now. Okay, while we're on the subject, quick, a sea devil. Sea devil. What would you like me to say? That's enough. <laughs> um, it was just sublime, says Ben, when he heard the ignore the rat. So simple, and yet that three-word phrase said so much about how everyone should approach this silly little TV show. I think all four <laughs> of us would agree. Yeah, go with that. It can never live up to Star Wars in terms of effects. You've got to just forgive them. Yeah. Um, it gave you the freedom to both enjoy the good and accept the bad because when you think about it the rat can be a metaphor for so much that is wrong in classic Doctor Who can't stand the papier-mâché snake in kinder no problem just ignore the rat (laughs) are you fed up with trying to make sense over which decade the unit stories took place no worries simply ignore the rat are you rendered speechless as to why the robotic robotic mavellans look like rejects from a 1978 disco (laughs) relax just ignore the rat nice simply put ignore the rat was a declaration of love a guideline on how to be an insane fan and yet still keep your grip on sanity it was a mantra i had visions of the phrase catching on appearing on t-shirts and bumper stickers being chanted at conventions people writing pop songs around it let's do it (laughs) i think so (laughs) I mean, in my mind, that simple three-word phrase had the potential to heal all the hurt and despair in the Doctor Who fan community. And so I made my case on the forum, a bold and passionate plea for others to rally to my cause, ignore the rat. And I was completely ignored. (laughs) So yeah, says Ben, I guess in the end, I was the rat. Well, you're not the rat to us, friend. Okay, Gary Davison, very, very sad about the loss of another member of the Doctor Who family with the passing away of Mary Tam. I think it reminds you of your own mortality, a bit of your childhood dying. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, this past two years has been an absolute nightmare for it. It has. And you kind of think, you know, no, you don't, I don't want to think about it too much because you start thinking about it too much and it's like, it all gets very depressing. So, you know, we'll just... We just carry on and be happy with uh, where we are in life and uh, and move on. Well, let's celebrate the stories then. Yeah. Um, we've had, apart from Gary's, we've had three other emails that sort of talk a bit specifically about stories and also more generally about Mary's Ham or about the key to time. And we're focusing on the key to time really tonight yeah. as much as we are anything else. So I'm going to split some of those up through the show. And as we talk about the individual stories mm. in our usual idiosyncratic order. Idiotic way, yeah. <laughs> I'll be um you know I'll be chipping in with the odd email but for to start it um Ben Schneider again um oh you love this my biggest memory from first seeing these stories is I could not stop looking at the thing on Tom Baker's upper lip. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. CGI. <laughs> I had no idea what it was. Was it a bandage? A bad makeup job? Was Tom in an accident? Was the doctor permanently disfigured? And would this thing on his face be there from now on? Keep in mind, I was first viewing these in the early 90s, pre-internet, in a part of the US that had never heard of Doctor Who, so I had no way of finding out the -the behind-the-scenes reason to explain Tom's weird facial appliance. Whatever it was, I found it completely distracting and missed the plot of the first story. Herpes does that. Fortunately, or, or dog bite. <laughs> it was a dog bite. Yeah, it was a dog bite. Yeah, it's just a Mark. Just say purpose. dog bite by the Dead Kennedys. Amazing record. Thank you. <laughs> yes, it is. 
Anyway, Ben carries on. Even to this day, it still bugs me. Like in Pirate Planet, when the Doctor is having his angry scene with the pirate captain yelling at him for destroying all the planets. Tom is screaming, what's it for? And all I'm doing is staring at his limp. (laughs) Staring at his lip, thinking the exact same question. Well, getting a bit personal. (laughs) Gary Davison says, I don't have any proper memories of the Key to Time season, but I've discovered her Romana instead in retrospect. The Ice Queen Time Lady of the first story was and is an iconic image, though that image too soon softened and the wonderful scene where the Doctor fakes going mad with the power of the key. It's a shame that this version of Romana wasn't allowed to grow outside of the constraints of the Key to Time arc, Mm -hmm. as Lala Ward did, but surely the first was the noblest Romana of them all. She was a classy bird, wasn't she? Let's talk she first. Was. She was. But let's talk first about the Armageddon factor. And the reason being that... But at the end... Yeah, the reason the being... The end of the quest. We, uh, <laughs> we decide between us... Spoilers. ...in what order we like the stories from our favourite to our least favourite. And we like to start with the least favourite and work our way upwards. Yeah, block graphics did it for me. Um, you know... Uh, Armageddon yeah. Factor is probably the dullest Tom Baker story. Over, overstretched, that story. But having said that, like all Bob Baker and Dave Martin stories, there's quite a lot going on there, you know, big stories that, you know, don't seem to transfer very well to the TV screen. Mm. I mean, it's about a massive world war between yeah. two worlds. If you'd have had this at the beginning of the season or uh, part of the season where you had more money, budget spent on it, you could have probably made this something quite incredible. Or if you had a lot more money in general, it's a great idea. I, I really like the idea. But you look at it, and how long is it? Is it six, parts. six parts. Six parts, and it's too to long. It's an invasion of time, Isn't job, it the really? last ever six-parter, Roger? I imagine that. Thank you. Pretty sure it is. For that. <laughs> um, yeah, because Shada was cancelled. Mm. And the only other one that you could conceivably count is The Two Doctors, which was three double-length oh, yeah. parts. Mm. Yeah. <clears throat> But it's the last one that was actually in six parts. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, so it was just very dull. What I did like was that we had, was it Drax? Is that his name? Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. Another Cockney Time Lord. Time Lord. Like a Cockney Time Lord, which, strange enough, you know, even though it was a kind of crazy idea, it kind of pepped the episode up a little bit. Mm. That's a nice idea that Time Lords are dotted around. Yeah. Here's a little the... piece of trivia for you. Now, Drax in Doctor Who was another Time Lord like the Doctor, but yep. Inspector Morse, the guy who played Drax, was the Doctor. Not in Inspector Morse, in Midsummer Murders. The guy who played Drax was the Doctor in Midsummer Murders. Oh, right. Yeah, oh, it's right. right. funny. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, he's, the, he's the pathologist. Yeah. 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 <laughs> never seen it oh you're uh, I haven't had a chance to you're do the lucky tumble. bugger <laughs> I haven't had a chance to do the tumbleweed sound for ages That's so I just wanted to you're usually the one okay. who causes the tumbleweeds to come rolling in Steve from Manchester says a six part bore the shadow was rubbish Drax was lousy Astro was a wimp Shap might as well have been Terry Scott the best part was at the end when Romana realises that the Doctor is only pretending to be power mad and her only reaction is to roll her eyes and mm. swat him with her hand that was a great See, Steve also says never did find out what happened to the inhabitants of Zeos. Of course, the second planet in the interplanetary world war was supposed to have it inhabitants, was... but they didn't have enough money, so they made it a planet that was deserted. It felt very hard to follow when I was watching it. Very hard to follow as to who was where, who was on what planet, 
and because the shadow was picking up people and taking them to different places, and it was. I found yeah. it very. It was basically dull. two episodes on Atrios, followed by two on Zeos, followed by two in the Lair of the Shadow, wasn't it? Mm. Mm. The shadow was kind of creepy. Yeah, kind of. If you were still awake by the time you got to the part mm. of the story where the shadow came in, he was kind of creepy. I think the thing for a lot of want... people that really blows the whole thing, particularly is the fact that it's the climax of this whole season arc, is the whole denouement at the end where they just think, oh, well, we'll just break it up and chuck it away again. I think that's brilliant, though. <laughs> no, I actually quite like that. Yeah, mm. it's... Mm. Um, I actually quite like that. Because mm. what are you going to do? You, you've got the, this most powerful object in the whole universe. You're going to hand it over to the you White Guardian? Just like Gandalf. You could put it back in that fridge they were keeping in. Sorry? You could put it back in that fridge they had in the TARDIS <laughs> they were keeping it. Yeah. It's like Gandalf, isn't it? Saying, don't hand me the Ring of Power because I will be corrupted by it. Yeah, if you I give the White Guardian that. all the power in the universe back to him so he mm. can restore that... I don't know. I don't know if I trust that. No, Gita. it's not. I don't, <laughs> know how, I don't know how good he is. It's actually logical anyway. At the start of the story, uh, the start of the season rather, the White Guardian is saying to the Doctor that the balance has been disturbed yeah. and he needs to find Stop this time. key. Right, but that's not true. There's a big lie going on there. The White Guardian and the Black Guardian, each of them wants to possess the key to time exactly. so they can come into dominance. So they send the Doctor out on this quest with this big lie. And then you get to the end of the season and the Doctor sees through the lie and throws the key away because the universe is in balance. We see every week on Doctor Who that the universe is in balance. There's evil, there's good. The Doctor's fighting evil and restoring good. That's the balance. Yeah, so I like the idea. I like the idea. Yeah, I think it's... A... It up and throws it and of course, the Princess Astra thing is yeah. a perfect excuse to do that. When he finds out that the last segment of the key is in fact a person, that's when he realises how evil it is for anybody to have the key, whether it's the force of good or the force of bad, is an evil thing to be in possession of the key. Now, remind me, it's Princess Astra. It. She is the Lala key Ward. to... No, she is the key to time. The segment. She is the, the last segment. Right, yeah. her whole body, her whole form, everything about her yeah. is, is the key to time. Does that make her a mortal? This it's, is a massive spoiler for someone who hasn't watched this series. <laughs> yeah. It's done now. She, yeah. Isn't it something about she's the sixth daughter of the sixth... King of the is she immortal? Planet, is what I'm trying to say. If I the key know. to time is, then that would make her immortal, wouldn't it? Just, just. Oh my interest. god! Don't think it through. It's <laughs> a bit of Bob Baker and Dave Martin for crying out loud. <laughs> uh, also on the subject of no, the Armageddon geez, factor. No cheese, <laughs> Was that Peter Sellers? Yeah. Okay, you can do that again when we talk about the Ice Warriors. Ben Schneider says. <laughs> <laughs> the public TV station that showed Doctor Who in the early 90s always showed the entire story with all the episodes edited together like a long movie. So from that point of view, it seemed like the scene in Armageddon Factor of the Marshal saying fire and pushing the button just kept going on and on and on and on and on and on. Yeah. Yeah. I've got to be perfectly honest. I can't remember that very well. That, that. I don't think anybody can. I, I don't even I remember. I thought it was the, the coolest thing in the story. But that's that I don't remember the shadow. What does the shadow even look like? Hang, Hang Marvin. Cowled. He's got like a sort of black cape and he's got like a skull shaped mask. That's like quite, Skeletor. Sounds quite cool. It does look like Skeletor, yeah. And his yeah. voice, I seem to remember his voice is like really spooky. Okay. I'll have to go back and rewatch that then. No, the mm. better thing to do is to go back and put it on from episode five because if you put it on from the start, <laughs> you'll be asleep by the time the shadow <laughs> turns up. And that's why most people can't remember him. Yeah. 
Look, Astra versus Romana and the change that was to come. We ought to bring it up. Because, of yeah. course... When... I was gutted. Gutted. Yeah, no, I mean, in oh. uh, in terms of Armageddon Factor. Let's oh, forget what happens in Destiny, apart yep. from uh, the fact that it came about because of the two actresses being together in the Armageddon Factor. Right. And so when Mary Tam decided she didn't want to come back for the next series... The decision was taken to replace her with the actress she'd been acting alongside in the previous story. I just wanted to say that's a really strange decision. Yes. Yeah, very strange. And I wonder why. I mean, was there already some kind of chemistry there between Lala Ward and Tom Baker, maybe? There may have been, which was spotted by producer at the time. But we can't, we can't be totally sure about that, can we? Mary- it's interesting that I think Mary Tam and Lala Ward, what I do remember of the <clears> episode, <throat> is that Mary Tam was definitely more domineering in her uh, character and then her performance than Lala Ward was. Well, Lala Ward was so, hardly in the story. Yeah. She has a bit in but the start I, I found and like very... small scenes in each episode, but she's really not in it all that much. Whether actually. it was her character or acting, it just oh, didn't seem very strong. really wet. Yeah. And um, mm. I don't think she, Lala Ward really That's what, Coming back to, to what I said honest. about being gutted, I think I probably based... The thought of her being Romana is on that character. That yeah. She seemed quite wet. and In Mary actually... Tam's book, yeah. she talks about the fact that it sounds very much like a rerun of uh, what he did previously with Louise Jameson. He was so convinced that she was going to come back that he just kept putting it off and putting it off of actually getting Doing someone else in. Yeah. And he, he, according to her in the book, even said to her, well, would you stay if Tom doesn't come back next year? <laughs> And she was really gobsmacked by that. Wow. I think there a was a plan for Tom to go at the end of the previous season, actually. Really? And it just, yeah, I don't know how serious it ever was, but I think there was definitely a plan for Tom to go at the end of season 15 and not even to be in the key to time. Although I don't know if the key to time would then have happened if there had been a regeneration. Mm. But it never came to anything anyway. There were other things like that actually. That um, the Witch Lord uh, was, was going. That was going to be a story that was going to be happening in that season, previous season, previous season. Was it? And yeah. they, were they going to push it to season sixteen as well? And then it get, no, it got, got moved down the way. Together. It got oh, okay. stopped. And Elizabeth Sladen was approached apparently to come back as Sarah Jane, but she turned it down. Oh, I think no, that I don't know whether that's speculation later. either, but. Um, that was that's again, something that's hung around with me for a few years, and I just thought, wouldn't that be interesting if she had to come back for that season? That wasn't that season, though. That was no, I think three that years was later when Tom left. Oh yeah, Peter, yeah, it was Louise Jameson as well, mm-hmm. wasn't it? Mm-hmm. I thought it was um, season sixteen as well. Hmm. I think Mary Tam felt that when she took on the role, she, at first she didn't want to take on the job at all. No, um, because she'd been used to seeing the sort of typical companion. And then it was sold to her very much on the premise that this is going to be something totally different. It's going to be a Time Lord who's going to be an equal to the Doctor. Mm -hmm. And it's more of a sidekick than necessarily a companion. And I think she felt over the course of that series... More of an equal than an underling. Yeah. She felt over the course of that series that it had really gone as far as it could. And she was very much falling Mm -hmm. back into that role of having to be the one who asked the Doctor what's going on. And she felt like it would be quite cool if, just for a change, they'd have the doctor asking her instead, but it never really came to that. And I think she just decided at that point, Tom would never have agreed to that no, anyway. No. I don't think. And she does say in her book that she appreciated that he'd been in that role for so long and it was his show. And, you know, he had a, he had ownership over that to a degree. 
One thing that was a shame, unlike Caroline John, who sadly we were talking about just a few weeks ago, uh, the other companion who didn't get a leaving scene. But Caroline John did have a scene at the end of her last story mm. that was kind of a substitute leaving scene, almost as if they knew there was a chance she wouldn't come back. So they gave her something for, you know, a final little coda to the last scene mm. that was kind of a little kiss goodbye. Yeah. But Mary Tam didn't really get anything like that. No, it would have been great to have um, a proper regeneration sequence. That's what I was. That's what I really <clears throat> was upset about when Lullaby Ward first took over from uh, Destiny of the Daleks, wasn't it? The, the opening scenes. It would have been great to have Mary Tam just come back. Just she for said say, she would have come back and done it, but she never. Yeah, got but why? Why is it that they didn't offer that to her? Because well, that would have been lovely. That would have been great to have her regenerate. Mm. You know, or maybe just something happens at the end of the Armageddon Factor. Right I the think end. the people making these TV programs at the time were not thinking about fans worrying about continuity and things no, like no, that. No, no, no. It just they would have been lovely making... to see it. Mm. Yeah, but they would have had to have paid her for the episode at the rate she was getting paid yeah, as a plus companion. plus all the effects. Fun? Plus all the effects, of course. And it was the Doctor's thing to change, not necessarily anybody else's, I suppose. So, you know, they, mm. they, they weren't thinking, oh, God, this is going to be people talking about this in 25 years. They just thought, no, we're not paying X amount of money mm. for her to come back for just two minutes and do that. I, I'm assuming it just never came up in conversation. You know, they wouldn't have thought, they wouldn't have thought to do it. Shall we uh, <clears throat> move on from the Armageddon factor? Please. Okay, next up. <laughs> yeah, but I like this next one. Uh, okay, I'm going to read the email from Steve from Manchester first and see if you can guess what the next story we're going to be talking about is. He says, what a turkey. Though the rubbish monster being revealed yeah, to be intentionally a rubbish monster was quite funny. And Ben Schneider says, I remember spending a few fan brain hours actually trying to work out if the reed flute the Doctor played was actually possible. <laughs> what story is this? Power of Crawl. I like the power of Grohl, in spite of the fact that I know it's not all that good. There's well, the just something about it that I really enjoy. Were <laughs> well, the Swampy's wigs the same as uh, the uh, Mavellans? But just like it's, a bit it's messed similar, up. isn't it? Yeah, I think you might be right there, and then again, you might be wrong. <laughs> it got voted fairly low down. I think I voted it fairly low down, but I do enjoy it. Do you? It's, it's a fun, it's a romp. Again, it's carried through with Tom's humour. It was written by Robert Holmes, wasn't it? It yes. was. So how can we do it? We're going to get to the Ryboss operational reboss uh, the, uh, further down the line. But that was much better written than, than say, this one. So how is it that a writer can suddenly Because he's just so spent crap? four solid years working on the show and he's just run out of steam. Yeah. He's got to the point where he's got one good script in him per year left and they ask yeah. him for two. Yeah. <clears throat> I like Kroll, though. I remember as a kid... Uh, and don't forget, it. The Power of Kroll yeah. is basically the same story as Caves of Androzani. Sorry, run that past me. Well, it's two planets. One is major, the other is minor. Mm -hmm. The people from major are exploiting the elements of minor for their own, you know, resources. And there's, you know... Dodgy gun runners. Yeah, and there's natives and... No, there's no natives in uh, Androzani, no. but no. there's the two different factions. There are no swampies or giant sea creatures. Lee, work in a library. You understand how <laughs> two things can be the same story without having... And this is the story where famously we get to see John Leeson as John Leeson and not on Androzani's... Actually, we get to see John Leeson as Dugin. Yes. 
Yeah, but not as a robot dog. <laughs> uh, the yeah, other, we get the to other... see John Leeson as yes. opposed to just hear him. Yes. I remember watching it as a as a kid, and I remember being really surprised and excited that the crystal was in the creature. Yeah. I couldn't work out how he was going to get it out of the creature, and of course, it was quite easy in the end. <laughs> dreadful special effects at the end, but somehow that last yeah. sequence at the end, mm. with all its dreadful special effects, really kind of works in a really sort of weird way. I mm. like the way that. He gets the final segment, but then they ramp it up again because you've got the whole thing with the countdown going on as well. So you, it's it kind of stretches out a bit more, and there's tension in there. It's good. I like that bit. Mm. I like the way it starts with uh, the Doctor and Romana, you know, getting their wellies on to go out for a wander around the marsh. But this is it. The Doctor and Romana, I think, throughout all of this season really good i really like that pairing yeah, yeah. and i like Tom, yeah, and i yeah. like mary tam and i like what they say to each other and she's so good with him mm. you know they must have been flirting off screen uh you know massively um because it kind of comes across a little bit uh, playful kind of flirting mm. on screen as well a little but uh yeah no, i they mean they made it interesting. away though sorry i don't think they hit it off straight away he was yeah he had this habit of testing new people who came into the program <laughs> She talks about doing the first program and he's effing and jeffing like a good one. And at first she's quite thrown by it. And then she realises he's just testing to see how far he can push her. Mm-hmm. And she just gives him as good as she gets. Yeah. And at that point they click. From that point on, That's how I they work. get on much better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're always effing at you. If but they you... are a great pairing. Yeah, they are. So, Power Crawl done. What's next? Oh my god, we're not whipping through them that fast. There's, I'd like to talk about the special effects. Well, um, I I love the, the old troll, troll horror. Yeah, the the, the tentacles, the tentacles yeah. dragging people the into the, the water. And that. It's great. As yeah. a kid, that story was like really, B-movie. really a funk. Yeah, but, it, but when you're a kid, you love B movies, right? Yeah, all those fifties B movies, like you know, Forbidden Planet, basically is a B movie, and all those kind of things like that. And it's just like one of those. Not wrong with Monster. And Doctor Who hadn't really done one like that for a little bit. Mm. Where do not where you just get onto a planet and you sort of explore the planet and the monsters like a big deal on the planet. Mm. There's like yeah, you'd had stories like Brain of Morbius where it's all sort of um it's all sort of in one location. Yeah, it's all yeah. sort of um what's the word I'm condensed. Mm. Brain stories like Brain of Morbius where it's all condensed. But Paracrawl is you get there, there's this big planet yeah, and there's this big marsh. It's all outside, and yeah, and there's this film. big monster. I know, and I like I like the fact that it's um it's linked with the key to time in that the monster is there because of the segment that made yeah. it grow that big. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the answer to where the segment is is it's kind not... of st- staring you in the face. Yeah, but that f- that first those first shots at the end of the first episode of Kroll rising up out of the swamp. Mm-hmm. I mean, you look at it as an adult. <laughs> And it's ridiculous, and you can't see how it can possibly work. But as a kid, as a kid it's mm. awesome. I don't. I haven't seen it as an adult yet. Oh, really? No, I haven't watched. The, well, when the you season. watch, I've it. only watched Stones of Blood recently. I think everything else. Oh, and Android Tatara on B Sky B. Well, when you watch Power of Crawl, all your, do you want to go home for the rest of this podcast? <laughs> When you watch Charming <laughs> Power of Crawl, you it for me. Pull your seven-year-old head on. Oh, really? Yeah, it's oh. great for a seven-year-old. Oh, okay. Like I did with the five doctors. It's the only way to enjoy it. It's silly, but it's great. <laughs> yeah. Okay. We're, it's not great. It's silly. 
Well, the silly equals great. Which is why I voted it down. The supporting cast are pretty good in that one as well, aren't they? Where did you put it on your list in order for it to come five? Because um, you seem to be, be bigging it up here. No, well, I, I rated it. It's a pretty I solid think I season. I preferred the others above it. I don't hate it. I just preferred it. You didn't put it in last place, Lee. Didn't I? Armageddon, in fact, was last, and Power yeah. was next on the list, I reckon. Yeah, well, that's how it's turned out in the yeah, final yeah, voting, yeah. Lee. But in the supporting cast, you've got Philip Maddock, who's, I think he's brilliant in everything. I think he was a bit miffed that he wasn't the... Was he in that as well? Wasted in it. Yeah. Wasted. And uh, is it Glyn Owen? Oh, I don't know. The, the guy who plays yes. Rom Dutt. Yes, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah he's yeah. really good. I like him. Mm. And even um, Neil McCarthy as Thorn. Yeah. Who? From Mind of Evil, Neil McCarthy. Right. Right for the listeners, that's okay. <laughs> Just in case anybody don't know, does, don't know who he is, anybody don't know who he is. He's the kind of grey-haired guy with the angular face and, and <laughs> a bit of a handlebar moustache going on as well. Wow, sounds great. <laughs> very, very seventies. <laughs> okay, next in our run through the uh, key to time, we're skipping Androids of Tara and moving straight on to the Stones of Blood, the story that came fourth in our voting. Why are we skipping over the androids of Tara? Because we're going through this in the order we voted for the stories, Lee. Right. Okay, so... Well, the Stones of Blood was our fourth favourite story of the six stories that made up the key to time. Oh, I see what you mean, as in... uh, Yeah, okay, yeah, you're confusing me. I I thought... you go and get him something to wake him up? No, no, you're you're doing it in season. Yeah, you're doing it. Yeah, okay, I understand Electric cattle prod? Yeah. He's a librarian, not a mathematician. I guarantee there'll be 50,000 people out there listening that have exactly the same thought process as me, where he goes, just skip Andrew's or Tara. He's not going to read it out. Look, we do this in our own idiosyncratic order. Idiotic way, yeah. So let's just do it. Declan May says, My all-time favourite Fourth Doctor story was and is The Stones of Blood, and I remember reading the novelisation in the school library. At the time, I wasn't so sure about the whole key to time arc. By that, I mean I hadn't a clue what it meant. Something to do with the TARDIS key? I had no idea. Also, in my mind, as I was reading the book, I was picturing Lala Ward as Romana rather than Mary Tam. She was the only Romana I'd seen at that point, thanks to a dodgy VHS of State of Decay. So when I finally got to see the story, sometime in the early 90s, another dodgy VHS copied from a PBS broadcast, presumably, I was absolutely blown away by the wonderful Mary Tam. She was so beautiful and, to my mind, absolutely the most gorgeous companion I'd ever seen. Yes, even including Perry, who had, up to that point, featured in many of my most fervid teenage Doctor Who erotic fantasies. (laughs) Steady on. (laughs) He's only just, he's only saying what we all thought. (laughs) (laughs) And afterwards, said Declan, I always thought of her as my Romana. She was a great companion and a wonderful actress and also a really charming and down-to-earth person in real life. Those emerald green eyes could cause your heart to shudder like a Gallifreyan flutterwing. Uh, goodbye, Romana. Goodbye, Mary. Yeah. We'll always have the stones of blood. And I'm sorry for thinking that you were Lala Ward. You can blame Terence Dix. Oh, what a thoroughly <laughs> <laughs> nice sentiment. email. Yeah. Brilliant. Stones of well, blood. Well, that's the thing as well. I mean, she was beautiful, but she was a really good actress as well. She really, mm. you know, she made that part. She was one of the few companions who was cast after having already had something of a film career. Yeah, she was in the Odessa file, wasn't she? And also she was in the Likely Lads movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Playing um, Bolam's girlfriend, wasn't it? James Bolam's girlfriend. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. She was excellent in that. Mm. Oh, was well. she? Yeah. Stones but, of Blood. 
Yes, tons of blood. Two mm. episodes of brilliance. And two episodes, two episodes of, of naffness. Mm. Sadly so. Stones of Blood would be among the greats if it wasn't for the whole hyperspace thing at the end. If they'd have stuck with the Children of the Stones effort, it would have been great, wouldn't it? Yeah. I, I even liked the moving stones. I remember <laughs> as a child, again, watching this, and then actually seeing the stones moving was like, oh my. They move, what they move, and they suck your blood. <laughs> what, a, what a great idea. So whenever we went to Avebury... As a kid, there is the some really creepy stuff at the start of that we, story. Um, really creepy. We lived in Kent, and we used to uh, travel down to Cornwall on holiday every year. So obviously we used to drive by Stonehenge every time. Stonehenge. Stonehenge. <laughs> we doing Stonehenge? Yeah. So there <laughs> the was... fly. Obviously it put a completely different slant on... Stonehenge. <laughs> well, they cats meow and they do it well. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my Lord. Beatrix Lehman is fantastic in this story. I think she's brilliant. Yeah, and, she's a, um, the batty lady. The yeah, batty, batty old, old lady, lady. Yeah. yeah. She's really funny. I think it's Tom like, Baker wanted to keep her home and take her home and keep her, didn't he? <laughs> I think he was, he was um, trying to campaign for her to be the next Romana. <laughs> there, is, there is one bit. I was watching this with a commentary on. And there's one bit where someone says, look, you can see the look on Tom's face. He's just completely downtrodden because he's finally found someone who can be more out there than he is. Stealing the screen time, yeah, basically. Yeah, yeah. And it's brilliant. Yeah. They work so you well can, together. And it's funny because you can tell that she knows the script. Yeah. But it's a bit like a Hartnell thing going on where it's yeah. a little bit jumbled. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And she just goes, well, well, you know, blah, 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 and she'll just make something up. You can see Tom's face going, where are we going with this? Yeah. You know, and it's almost like the one thing that like, <laughs> say he's met his match. <clears throat> the one thing that almost makes those first two episodes not quite work is the fact there's not quite enough of a supporting cast yeah, to, to make... throw the suspicion anywhere else. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Yeah. So, you know, Vivian Faye, it becomes really apparent really quickly that she's mm-hmm. going to turn out to be the Kylie or whatever it's called. What I really like... If Good I, enemy name. Am, am I right in thinking that this spaceship was above the stone circle? Yeah. And it was in set in hyperspace. Oh. So it was, so it was all intents and purposes oh, right. invisible, yeah. But it was just above all the stone the time. circle. I love that idea. Yeah, that this huge here. thing is just mm. slightly out of time, so close, mm. yet so far away. And yet, as soon as you get there... The story really falls flat on its face. I quite like the Justice, <clears throat> whatever they are. You did, didn't yeah, you? but it's just too much of them. Too much of them. No, absolutely. But it's it's a nice. It's a half uh, episode idea spread across an episode and a half. Yeah, yeah. What it does do is it leaves you room to show the two plots progressing side by side of the Doctor with the Justice machines and the three women in the cottage. But I don't think. Um, Terence Fisher, no, it's not Terence, David Fisher, ever really finds enough for those three women to do. I always feel that when we cut back to those women, mm. it's all just a little bit superficial. It does start falling apart a bit. It just mm. feels a bit flat. It's quite unusual, though, for its time to have three kind of leading ladies in one. Oh, program. yeah, famously so. Mm. That's been pointed out no end of times mm. to have, you know, and three th- big female characters in one story. a little bit too arch. Am I well. right in thinking the Doctor and Romana end up in the ship at yes. the same time? Right at the end, yeah. So if they'd split them off and left Romana on the outside well, she was and the kinder. Doctor in the inside, so... Sorry? She was kind of. Yeah, she had to find a way to get up to the ship to rescue him. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, and the batty old lady was looking after the... Well, I remember. The, uh, 
the gun thing. Yeah, Me- the memory's not what it used to be. I, it wasn't that long ago I watched it, but Wisting. I still can't recall it that well. Which thing gets destroyed, isn't that right? And then Canine comes along and fixes it. Am I right in saying that? I can't remember well, now. Yeah, but yeah, it does get fixed. And then... yeah. <laughs> um, ben Schneider says, fan brain on overload. You ever have those thoughts that just get into your head and won't leave? On first viewing the Stones of Blood, I remember my fanboy brain trying to reconcile how the stones glided along. <laughs> yet, <laughs> yet also were able on. to make giant footprints that the Doctor could stand in. <laughs> I couldn't work out a plausible explanation. They rolled along on little pebbles. Well, they're, 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 ogre, they're, they're not stones. They're actually beings. So they, it's anti-gravity. They just hover. And then they uh, sit down for a while and rest. Ben says... Also, they make a big deal over and over about hyperspace being impossible and ridiculous. And I remember actually wondering at the time if the producers of the show were taking a swipe at Star Wars. Possibly. <laughs> Do you know one of those humorous parts of that is when the, uh, the guy with the moustache, I think, is in the room and you can hear one of the Ogre coming and it, go, it glides past the... Uh, window. <laughs> it's a stone, glowing stone was, alien that glides past the window, and they're all really scared, and it smashes through. I was in stitches when I watched oh, it. Oh, t- it's, it's like somebody coming into the background at Crinkly Bottom, isn't it? <laughs> oh, no, 11s. We should explain like, to yeah. listeners who perhaps oh, don't watch British TV. Was, uh, serves you right. Really uh, no, it was a terrible Saturday entertainment programme where you I get think- celebrities coming in every now and again. And it was the I think people get the reference right, yes. from the way we're talking about uh, it. Yes, yeah. and they, it, was a, it was a faux house and it had a window and people would walk past the yeah, window. Yeah, actually John Pertwee appeared John on Pertwee it. John Pertwee appeared on it, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he did. And that was the 100th story, wasn't it? Yeah, and they cut the um, birthday scene that yeah. uh, Tom and Romana cooked up, was it? Or well, David Fisher, no, it was in the script, I believe. No, I don't know. They I could have it done it. Tom and Tom and Mary came up with it. And, uh, Maybe, yeah, I can't remember. John Neeson. Because it was the 150th episode in the 100th story, am I right? Mm. Oh, no, no, that can't be right. 150th no, episode. No. 700 and... Oh, I don't know. Wasn't that, wasn't that the part where Tom Baker turns around to the camera and toasts to one and all with... Oh, no, it's William Hartnell. Um, I always get those two mixed up. <laughs> They're so similar. <laughs> yeah, it's just ignoring us. It doesn't want anything funny. Absolutely. Uh, Steve from Manchester says, One of the best stories ever, though it begins to pall once they get onto the hyperspace ship. Even the question of how the augury move doesn't spoil it. Everybody's talking about the same thing. Stones move in and hyperspace. Yeah. What about the lawyer's wig in his pocket? <laughs> <laughs> that was silly. Yeah. Like Come on. Are we I'm saying s- there was nothing silly in Tom Baker's no, portrayal no, of Doctor to, Who? Do you think it was any good? I'm just trying to make conversation. We're on a podcast after all. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But I'm like halfway through Steve's, you know. Oh, right. He might come out with that. Okay. Go for it. Well, no, he doesn't come out with that. Right, lawyer's wig in a pocket. Good idea. Uh, wonderful chemistry, says Steve, between the Doctor and <laughs> Professor Rumford. This was also the first time at which I realised that women have nipples too, though I have yet to confirm this with empirical evidence. <laughs> Loved the outer space inner time line and the perhaps you could explain it to me then line. Thanks, Steve. Okay. <laughs> No, because I, I don't know if I was heard earlier. Vivian Fay, good name for a foe. It's like it's along the same lines as Corella de Vil, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, very good. Yes. Fay, obviously meaning fairy in old language, something. Oh. Factoid. Vivian Factoid. being the one with the punk and young ones. Yes, very good. Was there? I, you know, it's been a little while since I've watched Stones of Blood, and I can never remember what I see when they get on the hyperspace ship. 
Is there a Wirren? Yes. There is. Yes, there is. It's one of those things that I always think, oh, we're about to get to the bit with the Wirren, and then afterwards I can never remember whether there actually was a bit or whether I just remembered it because I'd imagined it was about to turn up. When I watched that recently, that surprised me. That was actually a genuine surprise. And I went, oh, that's brilliant. I love that. They wanted to bring back lots of different foes, and they realised that it would cost them so much in the rights that they couldn't do it. But I loved that. That was fantastic. But yeah, they should have definitely cut those two episodes down. And not giving him a lawyer's wig. More on Earth and less in hyperspace. What story is this describing? From Steve from Manchester. An interesting idea, but a silly story. The captain does trigger one of my strongest memories of Doctor Who, though. Several of us at school during this run misspent a number of chemistry lessons by gripping a lab clamp, pulling our jacket sleeves up over our heads, and then waving the clamps around while shouting, Mr. Fibuli! <laughs> Ears just exploded. That was really good, actually. It is, of course, the pirate planet. Uh, Douglas Adams' first Doctor Who. Indeed. I love Douglas Adams, but I'm not a big fan of this one. It's a good one for Romana, actually. Mm. The Stones of Blood, obviously, is a great one for Romana because it's all the strong female characters. And it's kind of the first one where she's out of the shell. But in the pirate planet, actually, even though it's written by Douglas Adams and he probably isn't too au fait with how Doctor Who's done... And probably, although the production didn't really allow for it, this is so, therefore, probably in Tom and Mary's performances. But in The Pirate Planet, you can definitely feel her beginning to go with the change, coming out of her skin a bit. That's something I always take away from that story. What's that? Coming out of her skin a bit. Okay. Yeah. Like a chameleon. Yeah, well, she's a time lord. Oh, blimey. Get with it, baggy. (laughs) Pirate Planet, though. <laughs> Douglas Adams. What do we think? <laughs> I love it. I really liked it. There are bits of it that don't work. I know. But but I love the idea of Califrax. It's quirky. It and, is. And full of ideas. And the concept is absolutely ridiculous, but really good. Yeah. And mm. beautifully played, played by Tom. And some of the other stuff in there as well, because we always think of the main idea, and we always concentrate on the main idea, but some of the other ideas, like the sort of druids, the hippies, whatever they're called, sort of doing the chanting and believing that they're calling the planets down. Mm. But of course, it's nothing of the sort, but you could probably sort of scientifically explain it away by saying, you know, that the gravitational forces as Mm. they approach a new planet are causing these people to do whatever and all this kind of stuff or whatever. But the interesting juxtaposition between these druids thinking they're pulling a planet down and a planet actually, you know, appearing, Mm. some astonishing juxtapositions of ideas there. Yeah, yeah. But... You know, I always think with Hitchhikers, and we were actually talking about Douglas Adams before we started doing this episode, and I said at, at the time, great ideas, great connections, great juxtapositions, but Hitchhikers is kind of superficial. But in the same way, Pirate Planet's not so superficial. What do you mean superficial? Well, there's, uh, you know, there's a big idea at the core. About There always seems to be lots of ideas running through Hitchhikers, but that's another podcast. No, but what I mean is that there's ideas, an idea that means something at the core. Hmm? There's an idea that means something. Hmm. Yeah, that, actually, for Douglas Adams, this is actually a A to B script. It's kind of, you know, hmm. A to Z, rather. But um, whereas, you know, Hitchhikers just seems to be a whole load of ideas thrown at the page, and he pretty much, I think, wrote it as he went along, almost. Yeah, yeah, It exactly. feels like that. Yeah. Well, that's what this I'm saying. This is obviously proper, proper writing for him. But uh, there's a lot of good um, Romana Doctor moments where they're talking. The, the 
yeah, I think the dialogue's pretty good in bits, but I'm not not sure about the city of the of the hippies. I wasn't that enamoured with that. I really just like the flying parrot as a kid. Yeah. Oh, firing at K nine. Dog love versus that. parrot. Yeah. <clears throat> I bet it's rubbish now, but as a kid, I totally loved it. It is why rubbish. It's higher yeah. on my list. I, I do was... like the bit where K nine brings him back like he's some kind of tracker <laughs> dog. <laughs> no attached to nose. Yeah. Good yeah. dog. Good dog. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I think that was one of the very first special effects that I thought. Oh, that's a special effect. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, it wasn't quite enough to spoil the whole <laughs> sort of... But uh, the the trouble with the pirate planet is, for all those ideas, like you just were alluding to, Lee, not all of them do stick. And that's the trouble. And as with a lot of Douglas Adams stuff, you know, if he could just write the story from A to Z, like you said he could probably write a really good story and, you know, maybe Dirk Gently is more of the, that kind of thing. But with the science fiction, it's just like, because it's science fiction, he just seems to, you know, this is the impression I get, he just seems to think he can get away with things that he can't necessarily always get away with. Destiny of the Daleks, brilliant example, the regeneration at the start of that. It's like, oh, this is Douglas Adams, got to change the Ron Romano to the other, what can I get away with? And it's like Pirate Planet is so full of stuff that it's just like Douglas Adams trying to get away with it. And it's you, just... you, you could you could aim the same criticism at Stephen Moffat though. I mean, I think oh, you could to relate to each other that that there are these huge ideas, mad stuff, all as you say, all sitting next to each other. I could yeah, think Douglas what? Adams would be more comfortable writing in this series, yes, than yeah, he was back maybe. in nineteen seventies. Late. I yeah. think Stephen Moffat pays it off though. I think that's the trouble with Douglas Adams. He throws it at the story, but it doesn't always pay off. You know, you've got to, your ideas have to come together at the end. Mm. And if you look at Hitchhikers, so many ideas in there that just, you know, you've got the idea and then it's gone. And it's almost like a, it's almost like a comedy sketch series where as soon as one sketch is done, you move on to the next one. There's a lot mm. to be said for it, though. I do like that manic sort of writing. I was, for some reason, it's making me think of the early Tank Girl comics. No, but, really. there's all these but in drama, your ideas really need to go somewhere. Mm. Otherwise, they're just, you know, gloss. The thing is great Stephen to... Moffat, his well. ideas do tend to go somewhere. Yeah. But, uh, but like you were saying, the Douglas Adams ideas tend to have an inherent idea. The okay. idea that the idea itself is the thing that makes you think. That's the, yeah. Which is why I think it's a bit superficial. Right, okay. Because there's nothing deeper than the idea. The thing that grates with me just... on that one is the captain. I know it's no events to Bruce Purchase because he's actually just playing what he's been written. But he was great I in Quatermass. Find it really, really irritating. The whole thing is just no. Doesn't <clears> is it a bit too pantomime for you, Mark? A little bit, yeah. There's a little bit of that going on. <laughs> Maybe Jonathan. A... Jonathan. <laughs> John Nathan Turner's around the corner taking notes. Maybe. Um, John Nathan Turner was working during Graham Williams from this point. I think he was on the key to time, wasn't he? I was going to say, I loved the reveal at the end where it turns out that the nurse is actually yes, the... that is cool. Yeah. That is cool. Oh, yes. Mm. God, I'd forgotten about that. Yeah. After all these years. That is, yeah, that was excellent. That yeah. was nice. I was totally shocked uh, as a kid. Because I think the similar thing yeah, happens, or there's a very similar relationship between the protagonists or the antagonists in androids of tara as well mm. so you know the one idea kind of spoils the other one a little bit but it's still nice 
and of course Pirate Planet having come first and having had the bigger reveal, it works so much better. It's a beautiful moment. Mm. Are we going to... We're definitely going to have to put spoilers at the front of this, aren't we? (laughs) (laughs) I think think people will have... Hopefully have watched it. We'll have watched it. Well, I've forgotten about it now. I'm going to go back and watch it again because I'm just getting... Itchy feet. Yeah. This this thing about the key to time as a whole, I found it at the age of 10 or whatever I was to be slightly of a disappointment Mm -hmm. because they had toned down the sci-fi and the horror. And as an adult, I love it more because it's a lot more literary Mm. and there's a lot more dovetailing of ideas. And although they don't always work, Stones of Blood kind of far too long in the hyperspaceship at the end. The idea is nice with the justice machines, mm. but it's just it doesn't get there quickly enough and the story runs out of steam. And Pirate Planet, Douglas Adams doesn't always pay off on what he's setting up, that kind of thing. Armageddon Factor, obviously they run out of money, so they can't make the story they really want to. Power of Crawl is Robert Holmes running out of steam, but there's still a bunch of great ideas in Power of Crawl, enough that he can regurgitate them and make the best Doctor Who story of all time. You know, Caves of Androzani. Despite all the obvious things you've just pointed out, it still is a fantastic series. It's one of my well, favourite no, That's what I'm series. saying. Yeah, I'm exactly. saying it. it's a perfect example of Doctor Who that you can buy into in spite of its failings yeah. as a greater whole yeah and i think most of that i think most of that is down to mary tam and tom baker yeah. well more than anything yeah they're they they're the consistency that yeah. gels it together absolutely and mary tam like we were saying just now is a brilliant actress and a good enough actress to carry that off because that was a difficult part mm. and to come into a part like that and whether it was intentional or not to play superior but subservient to a strong character like Tom Baker and to judge it just right so that it came across on screen as perfect. Mm. It it doesn't come across as an affectation putting the Time Lady into that series Mm. because that could so easily have looked like an affectation. But it doesn't. It just seems really natural. And that's because Mary Tam judges where to put her performance in relation to Tom Baker's. And Tom Baker t- tones it down a bit in this series as well. There's a bit... Season 15 is where he's starting to get a bit into the madcap because you've got things like the Sunmakers and Underworld, Invasion of Time, where the money and the ideas are running out. But Key to Time not only brings the ideas back, but it also brings a stronger female for him to play off against back in after you know the Leela character kind of dribbled away to nothing by the end. And Tom Baker's challenged again, and he's actually making good Doctor Who again. Mm. I seem to remember at the time there was a certain amount, if you can call it hype, on the BBC. Because I remember really looking forward to the series. They really, I think they advertised it really quite intensely. Yeah, they did. Because I do remember being quite excited about the series. And mm. it's, you know, at that and age, the fact it was that the they were on the quest for the key to time made it seem, even before yep. it started, like it was going to be something much bigger and much more special well, than... I was going to make the point right at the end, but I probably won't remember, so I'll say it now. Go on, it's then. me age. Um, it appealed to the collector in all of us. Yeah. The idea of putting all the bits... Uh, mm. Probably wasn't intentional, but actually looking it at it now... It was probably too early to be intentional, lo- yeah, but it worked perfectly. Yeah, it's a lovely perfectly. little analogy on 
yeah. nerds like us, the completest. I always loved the of quest us. thing when I was a kid. But it's the idea of putting all the bits together to to make something. Yeah. Yes. yes. Um, reboss operation. Mm. I mean, which I called the riboss operation for a very long time. So did I. Oh, this was the days when you were too far away from having watched the TV yeah. versions to remember how they said it <laughs> yeah, and tar- read it in your head <laughs> yeah. over and over in the Target book. This was my number one. Mask of Mandragora, or yeah. the Wern, as I thought was in the Ark in Space. <laughs> I, until you said the Wern. I thought it was the Wern. I thought yeah. it was the Wern, yeah. Yes. <clears throat> yeah. And Romana. So is this no, <laughs> just, just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> the Reboss Operation. Uh, Steve from Manchester. Not bad, but I've never understood why the Shrivenzal never gets mentioned in the same breath as the other great disastrous monsters, the giant rat, the murka, and Dodo Chaplet. Ignore the rat. Ooh, that is really <laughs> evil. Ignore the rat. Uh, exactly. I don't know Ignore how you the can... chaplet. Steve, I just don't know what's going on in your head. How can you call the reboss operation not bad? You know, this was so close to a tie for our favourite story of the season. It was. Yeah, this it is was. my number one choice. It's just beautifully written. Do you know what the, the major parts of that, the, the thing that really hit me, even as a child, and that's, that's, I've watched it since, Binro. I love Binro. Mm. I love Binro the Heretic. Yeah. Great acting, great little scene. Has nothing to do with anything. It doesn't need to be in there at all. There's no part of the plot, is mm. it? I don't think there's anything there that's part of the plot. Not effectively. No. He works so, there as a, you know, if you're going to be authorly about it, yeah, go on. he works there as the sort of antithesis to the Graffinder K mm. in terms of a demonstration of the plot. Okay. Well, Graffin Decay comes from outer space yeah. to take something yeah. from yeah. this planet, yeah. whereas then this yeah. other guy is of this planet who shouldn't know, but guesses about us. But you could have taken that scene out, or him oh, out, yeah, yeah, no, and it no. would have still it, it's... been okay. I'm saying it, it really I'll just added try and say why it yeah, works. Yeah, yeah. Um, am I wrong in thinking it's almost Shakespearean in I've all the different roles? Here. It is a bit, yeah. I wrote Shakespearean, yeah. yeah. That's really? The, that's the word I used. Yeah, because I was thinking about the conmen and the... Uh, only it's almost it, like a couple of roles you would get in a Shakespeare yeah. play. You yeah, you've got a bit of a much ado about nothing thing with a couple. Of, there's a couple mm, yeah. in there that are quite comical, and you know, yeah, there are. And I think it's the way where it's written anyway. Generally, it's not the best. I don't think it's the best Doctor Who ever made. But there's, no, there's you can never make that claim. For the Shrivenzal, for instance. But it's one of the most enjoyable, yeah, purely yeah. enjoyable Doctor Who's ever made as an adult, I guess. Because the one thing about the Reboss operation is, as a kid. It was a deathly dull start to that season. As a kid, it was. Yeah. yeah. In mm. retrospect. Yeah. I mean, you I also... Love it. And the trouble was, as well, as a kid, you're kind of expecting the monster that's revealed at the first cliffhanger <laughs> to be the big threat for the rest of the story. Yeah. yeah. And in spite of the fact that the monster wasn't very good, even as a kid, you probably wouldn't have noticed that the monster wasn't very good. But the fact was that after two minutes into the second episode, you don't really see it again. That was a mind-blowing disappointment because mm, you're, you're built up to expect that monster yeah, yeah. to be the, you know. So as a kid, Actually, there was we expect it to hit the ground running, don't you, after the intro, mm, the whole yeah. Key to Time intro. Well, yeah. there's a severe lack of monsters throughout the entire Key to Time thing, really. I mean, I know you've got, well, you got, you got, you've, got in you've got a monster and everything, but not, no, what I mean is not, the rubber monster isn't all the way through it. Say like the, no, the seed yeah. of death. A seeds of death, seeds of doom. You've got it from start to finish. Daleks always there, you know. If if, if it takes and an what episode, you'd they're have, always there. There's always a presence. What you have, have that. it's more human drama under Hinchcliffe. 
what you'd had under Barry Letts was racism monsters, which people like Malcolm Hulk very mm. cleverly wrote so that you would have hierarchies within the species. But there were races of monsters under Barry Letts. Then Philip Hinchcliffe came along and he said, no, what we want to do is tell a different kind of a story where there'll be kind of a spokesperson for the monster. So you've got Davros for the Daleks. I mean, in the Sideman story, you do have the Cyber Leader. And, you know, the Vogons you've got in the Sideman story, that's what Robert Holmes brought to it. Then you've got things like, um, you know, Stigron for the Kraals. And, you know, Brain of Morbius, you've got um, Solon. And um, then in Seeds of Doom, you've got um, Chase. So you're moving away from showing racism monsters into having a figurehead character who can be um, somebody for the Doctor to confront one-on-one. And you're moving away from having it being the monster and towards having it being a human character. I mean, by the time you get to Talons of Wang Chiang, they're even playing tag on this with, first of all, um, um, Chang and then Greel. So by the time you get into Graham Williams, who's more interested in books than old Hammer films anyway, by that point, they're just putting the monsters in because you've got to have a monster in there somewhere. Hence the Shrivenzal and the Taran Woodbeast. But it's all about humans. Yeah, Mm. human drama. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. I also like the costumes that they had. Yeah. Uh, It was very Russian-esque kind of costumes, Mm. medieval. Lots of fur. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. And and great characters by Holmes again. Paul Seed is really... Chewing the scenery, good and proper, isn't he? It's the graph in decay. Romana, Romana's dress oh. has to be mentioned. Yeah, calm down, Mark. Stunning. Did she make that? Herself? Well, all her costumes are amazing. I think she worked very closely with June Hudson designing all of the mm. outfits. Good choice. Uh, what I will going back to what I was saying just now, actually, and going back to the JNT podcast from two weeks ago. What I will add is that the stories during Graham Williams still had enough pizzazz to carry the kids along, even with the you know, dearth of monsters. They were still easy enough for the kids to understand and follow and had enough spacey, I mean, with obvious exceptions, enough spaciness or adventure or daring do going on. Spaceships. You know, they may not have had monsters, but they had spaceships or they had, you know, ancient civilizations or they had mythical analogies. So or they pirate. still... They, they were still involving. Well, pirate for them. they still the Graham Williams story still worked on a bunch of different levels. You know, I was saying a few a couple of weeks ago when we got to season twenty, that's when it stopped. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I thought I ought to uh, bring that up. <laughs> anyway, shall we uh, talk more about the rebus operation? The scene at the very start. Yes, the White yes, Guardian the White scene Guardian. with the Doctor. Yeah. What will happen if I don't collect the key to time for you? Nothing. What? Nothing? No, nothing. Ever. Great line. And actually, that was written by Anthony Reid, not Robert, it, Robert Holmes. Great, great line. I love that line <sighs> yeah. so much. And it's, it just showed you how important it was to do that quest in about three seconds flat. And a fantastic piece of acting as well to sell yeah. that so low mm. key. In a wicker chair, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Cyril Luckham. Yes, it was. Yeah. <laughs> Cut that out. It looked like Colonel Sanders. There's a lot of huge debate now about whether that is the White Guardian or whether it's the Black, black Guardian mm. pretending to be the White Guardian. Cool. 
But I don't know whether that was actually supposed to be how you thought so of it at the time. So we've never that seen maybe... the White Guardian ever. No, what you're trying to say? No, because or the White Guardian, Guardian is sitting opposite the Black Guardian on a table in Enlightenment. Could be a trick. But it's funny because <laughs> you start the series with the White Guardian just for one scene. And then you finish the series with the Black Guardian just mm. for one episode, I think. I can't believe you didn't know where the where the bits were. They're supposed to be that powerful. Yeah, he's given the Doctor this tracer that can find them. Why yes. hasn't he got a tracer? I of love his that own? tracer, even though it looked like it was made out of stickle bricks or something. It looked like a straw. Um, is it the first example of the the Doctor being portrayed as something more than just a Time Lord? Because he's chosen for this quest, which is supposedly, you know, reality is at is at risk. So is it the first example so, of... Yeah, because White Garden could have chosen anybody. Yeah. But maybe he's been keeping tabs on the Doctor from the start. Looking, well, the thing looking, is, looking at all his adventures and seeing how, how good he is. <laughs> yeah. But the Doctor <laughs> is the one who goes out and gets involved in things, isn't he? Yeah. If you're a Guardian and the next race down is the Time Lords and they're all dusty and don't know how to do anything apart from watch, then you're going to choose the Doctor because he's the guy who actually goes out and does things. What about mm. the Eternals? Yeah, but oh, the Eternals like hadn't been... Again, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Lee's favourite password. Yeah, JR's rolling his eyes. It's definitely the, the biggest thing at stake the Doctor's ever. I'm apart sorry, from maybe, he... I suppose, for Genesis, as far as the Daleks are concerned, but it's probably the biggest... Well, it's the whole of creation had to deal with, isn't it? It's mm. the whole of creation at stake, isn't it? Yeah. He was only chosen, Dots was only chosen because we're watching him on telly and it's Doctor Who. Oh, shit. If he wasn't me. chosen, it wouldn't have happened and there wouldn't be an eventual season 16. <laughs> That's how fiction works. Yeah. <laughs> um, Gary Davison rewatched the Rebus operation yesterday again in between the Olympics for the first time in a few years. Um, wonderful ice cream performance by Mary Tam initially, but there's a lot more than I'd noticed before. An almost public school snobbery and a real vul- vulnerability yeah. at times. And the interaction between her and Tom Baker throughout was the best thing about the story. Brilliant. The naivety I liked. The fact that she is younger than the doctor. She thinks she knows it all. She's fresh out of college or the academy or whatever, and she thinks she knows it all. She's quite snobby and she knows lots of technical stuff about you know that the, the, the doctor doesn't know but i do like the fact that she's yeah full of it and actually on a practical expedition and the field she's a bit rubbish <laughs> but I there's like... also a nice balance with the doctor who's on a field expedition is pretty good but when it comes to the basic stuff like knowledge you're not always quite there i like it when she's saying about um doesn't he criticize her for being wet behind the ears having just come out of the academy with a first and she comes back with this line about, oh, it's better than scraping through at the second attempt at 50%. <laughs> that was great. Yeah, she's bound up on him as well. She knows oh, this He stands up and says, that's supposed to be confidential information. <laughs> Gets really upset. Great. Right. Um, ben Schneider. I remember having an honest and violent outburst of, what? No. When the Doctor's scarf was cut in two. I think that was a, what? No. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. I uh, my <coughs> my acting abilities what? no decreased over the course of the evening. 
And I remember being so impressed with the model of the Count's castle for first look you get of it when he points it out to Romano from his horse. I just thought, oh, that's a good model. What with all the huge towers and perspective seemed perfect. For years I thought it was a model, till the story came out on DVD and I learned that it was a real castle. Mm -hmm. However, thanks to the greatly enhanced DVD picture quality, the first look we get of the castle now is ruined. The very sharp picture now makes it very obvious that the towers were added on as a matte painting. (laughs) (laughs) And Steve from Manchester says, One of the rare Doctor Who stories which manages to portray a convincing alien society. Just a pity that it sidelines Romana a bit. Mm. Well, this is the androids of Tara, obviously, and it does completely almost sideline Romana, but, but only... Mary Tam really gets... Well, she gets a lot. Yeah, she, she gets a lot in that. Gets her teeth she? into... Yeah. How many parts does she have? Three parts in that program? Four. Romana and Strella and Romana's robot double mm. and Strella's I robot double, I think. I absolutely love this one. I love this. Isn't How can you great? not love this? It's just a swashbuckling, epic sword fighting bit of fun isn't it even the tar and beast is all right really it's all right isn't it? compared, <laughs> well, compared there, to fun. the shriven and kroll and all the other rubbishy beasts it probably there. does the doubles thing better than yeah ignore yeah. the other yeah, yeah. <laughs> well it, you know it's well, got a pretty good source <laughs> yeah yeah i mean it's like pretty much scene for scene in places the prisoner yeah. of zender isn't it, it? Is. Yeah. yeah doctor who steals well you know when it steals something it does a good job there is one of those stories where it kind of drags you in with a deception because they're on the search for the key to time. And of course, not only does the key to time in this instance get found straight away yeah, and then not having it to do, Brilliant. but also because they're on the quest and on the three previous stories, the quest has also had that sort of importance throughout the stories. You come in, and even though they find the key straight away, and you know there's still three and a half episodes, so it's got to go somewhere else, the way that draws you into the story that you're about to see as well, I mean, I find it hard to put this into words, but when I very first watched it when I was a kid, that opening episode, really, I didn't know where it was going to go. And it wasn't just because they'd already found the key and it was obviously going to go somewhere else. It was a surprise all the way through. Yeah, I really couldn't... not knowing the prisoner of Zender at the age of whatever it was, you know, and not knowing there was going to be a swashbuckling swords and castles and kings and queens and all this kind of thing with robot doubles. You know, there were so many little things I wasn't expecting that just kept popping up and saying to me, oh, this and oh, that. The reason why it's the top... That's going to go on to... I think it's the top on my list. (laughs) But uh, the... the Ribos, 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 <laughs> I still can't say it right after all these years, Operation was the one that didn't really uh, grab me as a kid. And Do- now it does now. Whereas Androids did. It was like another historically type thing. And I was thinking, oh, okay, all right, this is all right. I'll, I'll stick with this. And then it became dub- robot doubles, you know, Androids in this strange kind of feudal society thing going on. It just felt, again, juxtaposition, that's the word, isn't it? It was a lovely kind of mixture of ideas and, and the design themes. work was lovely as well the yeah. kind of um, yeah, yeah and you got that turkish as well sort of sorry look to the was it turkish yeah yeah, suppose, yeah. Sort of and, kind of, and the yeah. location the location again yeah, yeah there's a lot of location in the story great. and it's really good location yeah the one thing it slightly misses is it doesn't quite have the wit that robert holmes would have brought mm. to it but i don't think you miss that so much because there's so much else going on 
In fact, it's, yeah. it's one of those stories, an, yeah. that, and there's very few of them, that work just as well when you're a kid as they do when you're an adult. Yeah. Because, I mean, most stories will lose something in translation one way or the other, or lose something or gain something. But this one absolutely just works on that pitch-perfect level for whatever age you are. It is kind of ridiculous, though, isn't it? If you think about, if you think about how good those androids were. For a medieval for society. Medieval society. <laughs> yeah. It's just ridiculous. It doesn't really hold water at all. But uh, I don't know. I think it's just fantastic. You know, I will say that in spite of there being four roles for Mary Tam to play, I don't really she think... she played the Tyrant Beast as well, though? No, two android doubles. That's what I've always taken it as. <laughs> I will say, you can do your uh, tumbleweed. <laughs> I think in spite of the four roles, I don't think this is Mary Tam's best story. A lot of the times she's either drugged or a robot or tied up. That's three different types of acting. That's I can impressive. imagine for her as an actor, it must have been something you really look forward to. The fact that you get to play three different parts in the same thing must have been mm. great fun. Was this the purple outfit one? Yes. Yeah. Mm. But I just remember them by the outfit she was wearing. Yeah, but see, the, the, the majority... She's, I actually think that in spite of all these different roles, mm. Mary Tam's probably got less screen time in this story than any of the other five because the story is all about the Doctor rescuing her yeah. and sorting out the political intrigue. Mm. And Romana's really relegated to second-string subplot for almost the entire running length. So I, I was half expecting Kral to turn up on the android invasion. Because yeah. there's a, yet another companion that has this android link i was just thinking with the title like that it, it, as a kid i was thinking oh you know this has got to be sequel to the android yeah really. yeah <laughs> bit early for chameleon though sorry bit early for chameleon the really awful robot from oh my <laughs> god it's tumbleweeds all over the place tonight <laughs> a chameleon you, you've forgotten all about chameleon oh, you do a whole podcast on 10 past 11 though. yeah it's late isn't it? <laughs> a whole podcast on chameleon it's gonna last three minutes um sucky cock Mary Tam was the first Doctor Who companion that I met, and it wasn't at a convention or a signing. I had entered a satellite TV quiz show called Telestack, hosted by Paul Ross. Anybody remember Paul Ross? No. Yeah. yeah, he was on Big Brother's Little Brother, or whatever I call it, last night. How was he? Mm, no idea. Okay. Jonathan cheaper... Ross's brother. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. A cheaper version of Teleaddicts. Each episode... Three... Cheaper version? <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. This was satellite, and this was way back when. Each episode, well, I say way back when, I don't know how far back when, but it was obviously back when. <laughs> I think I vaguely remember this program. Each episode, three contestants would answer as many TV-related questions as possible to win a grand prize of a 21-inch portable television painted gold. There would also be a famous guest from yesteryear on each show. As these shows were recorded in batches of five a day, there would be one guest for those shows, those five shows. My guest was Mary Tam. She came on, we spoke for a bit, and then she left. Then, after the recording, I wanted her autograph as a consolation prize. I'd beaten the other contestants, but couldn't answer the one question in the timed round, and so ended up with a book rather than the TV. So the assistant on the show took me to see her, and she was in makeup, sitting there in her bra with just a small smock to cover her modesty. She got up, smiled, asked if I enjoyed the making of the show, and signed my book. 
and then I left. I've still got the book, but I can't find the Telestack episode. So that was one of our... <clears throat> wow. You've just stunned us. Somebody there. should be able to find that, shouldn't they? On YouTube or somewhere, perhaps. You should have got a picture of her. <laughs> I know the trouble with things like that is very, very small-scale <laughs> satellite stuff might not necessarily turn up on YouTube. No, no. No, I meant, uh, Mark's shaking his head, but I meant, you know, you know when you have a picture with the star, you could have had a photograph there. With a top on, Mark, oh my... Ben Schneider, my initial reaction to Mary Tam, after the slow pan from the floor to her face in Rebos operation, I'm sad to say it was, oh, she seems kind of old. What? Well, <laughs> he goes on to say, sigh, I was just a kid then, new to the ways of the world. Yeah. Mm. You know, Doctor Who companion should be a teenager. Yeah, you know, maybe that's what. Oh, that's what you're used to. Mm. So when you see the new one and she turns out to be on equal footing with the Doctor, mm. it sidefoots you. Anyway, uh, Ben says, by the time I saw her in the short white outfit for Armageddon Factor, I finally got her. Mm. And Steve from Manchester says the two best parts of the whole series, and so sadly just now, were undoubtedly the character of Romana and the actress Mary Tam. We're always being told that the important role of the companion is to be our window into the show, into the show, asking the important questions that we want to ask. But here they completely overturn that by giving us a companion much smarter than the Doctor, and it's a triumph. She's not as streetwise as the Doctor, so she doesn't threaten his position in the show, but we finally get an adult relationship between Doctor and companion. As if that were not enough, we get the wonderful Mary Tam to play the role. Beautiful. Superior enough to pass as a Time Lord, but warm enough to pass as the Doctor's friend. So true. Agreed. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Uh, she sold it to me when she cheerfully said, All right, call me Fred. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's oh, yeah. a great line. The two characters grow closer and more at ease with each other throughout the season, or maybe this was the two actors growing more at ease, till we reach the point where Romana is barely phased at all by his silly megalomaniac routine. Such a pity she left so early, but understandable as her character wasn't given much to do or much development, but she will always be the best Romana for me. Yep. I agree wholeheartedly. Yeah. <clears throat> Not quite. I, a Lalawa ward for me. Uh, I think. No, but I no. still love Mary Tan. She's yeah. fantastic. I have a thing for Lala Ward on account of the fact that she reminds me of my missus. But uh, <laughs> apart from that, <laughs> yeah, okay. We have to be careful in the future then. Yeah. Can anyone here actually say Romana's full name? Romana Durandal. Again, one at a time. No, we can't do it one at a time. <laughs> Made a complete mess of it and only got away with it because we both said it at the same time. <laughs> Say Fred. <laughs> I know that I can spell it. Yeah. I don't know how you're supposed to say it. Every time I watch the reboss operation, I think, no, I'm going to memorise... I'm going to memorise where the stresses are and the vowels, whether they're short vowels or long vowels. I'm going to memorise all this. <laughs> and, then, and, you know, five minutes after that scene, I'm sitting there going... No, it is gone. Well, imagine how Mary Tam felt when she got the final script and they changed the spelling of the name just before she had to do that scene. So they Ooh. put a different letter in somewhere along the line. Wow. And she had to. Maybe that's why the pronunciation that she does is so weird. Mm. Because she doesn't pronounce it the way you'd think she would pronounce it to see it written down. Mm. Yeah, so maybe. 
And she that's the only time I believe it's ever said in the course of the series. Mm. So maybe that was just a it's an on the day pronunciation, you'll never have to do it again. Mm. Yeah. And maybe it would have been Romanid Veratlarunda, which is how it's written. The holy hand mm. designate Max and Rodin <laughs> But that's it's how it's written, but I'm name, sure that's not it? how she says it. What's that? It? It's such an R T D name. What's that? Romana. The long version. Yeah. Don't yeah. try and make me say it. Rex Corrigafalaptorius. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. There's no point in trying to impress us. Everybody can do that. No, no, no. Go on then. Even the budgie. Go on then. What? You do it. Rex Corrigafalaptorius. Don't put <laughs> and, me on And the there spot. we have an Easter egg. <laughs> <laughs> don't put me on the spot. We're still in the show. I don't know if you're aware of this, Simon. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. I think we should stop the show then. <laughs> I'm going to time stretch it. How do you it. say the full Romana name? I can't. Yeah, give it a go. No. I'll be myself like a tit now. It's your turn. No, because I can't even think what it is. <laughs> I know right. it ends with a Vunda or Runda. <laughs> right, next <clears throat> podcast you'll get it right. Yeah. Mark, how about you? I'll take a pass on that. Oh. oh Just me chicken. and you, JR. Yeah. I think we did it, man. High five. I'm the only one who said it by himself. <laughs> Romana Bratnalunda. Where did that come from? <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. from the corner of the room. <laughs> that would have been brilliant if you'd said that 10 minutes down the line. Just out of nowhere. Anyway, yeah. Oh, I think it's time to say goodnight. I think it is. Uh, is that was... all of them, is it? By me. Yeah, we've been through them all. We've... I think we've been going for something like an hour and a half. No, you're looking Let... now. Yeah, I'm not We're not supposed look at... to look anymore. No. Um, I was JR. I was Lee. I was Mark. I was Simon. And see you next time. You can contact us by email via blueboxpodcast at yahoo.co.uk. Romana Vratla Lunda Romana Vratla Lunda Da Da Romana Vratla Lunda Romana 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 Vratla Lunda That is not going on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs>